Hello and welcome to episode 184 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the incredible film director Prano Bailey Bond. She is responsible for giving us one of the best horrors in the last 10 years, an absolute masterpiece that I hope you've seen, the incredible movie Censor. It's an amazing horror, it's directed beautifully, it is everything that you'd expect from an unbelievable debut and honestly it's a work of art. If you haven't seen it on the big screen, go and check out the recently released Second Sight release because honestly, it's got everything. It's beautiful. I've been spending this weekend watching all the extras and it is just amazing. Hopefully, if you haven't seen the film right now, you will do this after today's interview because Prano is an amazing, amazing person and this has easily become my favorite interview so far this year. She's just adorable. She really is just everything. But before we get to that interview, let's touch base and talk about the last episode. On episode 183, I was joined by Brian Garris, the frontman from the awesome band Knocked Loose. Such a great interview, such a great guest, and the response was amazing. So thank you for everyone that tuned in, and hopefully some of you are off to see them in the UK this week, because they're going to put on one of the best live shows you'll ever see. But today is all about Censor. It would easily make my top film of last year if I'd seen it last year. I've only recently just seen it, but it blew me away. So then when I had the opportunity to do this interview, I couldn't believe it and it's a dream come true. So I want to get straight to it. So here's me and Prano talking all things horror. So Prano, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thanks for having me. What I want to do today is take it right back to the start. So tell me about those early films that you watched that made you fall in love with film, maybe from a very young age at the cinema or sitting with your parents, I don't know. But what was those first movies that you thought, my God, I absolutely adore film? Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Wales in the countryside and there wasn't a huge amount to do. Um, it was beautiful. Um you know incredible landscape that really inspired me but my first uh contact with films really was my parents vhs shelf because there was no cinema nearby the closest cinema was about half an hour drive and there was one bus a week to get there so wow. I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't go there on my own obviously as a child so i discovered this array of amazing films and that's kind of what I picture in my head when I think of the films that, you know, got me into cinema and got me into storytelling. Um, those included Razorhead and Blue Velvet. I'm a huge oh, David Lynch fan. He is a god. Blue Velvet, yeah, Blue Velvet is a massive one for me in terms of, you know, my relationship with cinema and and seeing that film and understanding what cinema could be and how it could venture in a kind of almost grounded way but into something much deeper and darker and and the feeling that 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 film kind of creates um and the surrealism of David Lynch's films was so inspiring um yeah also American Psycho I mean that was when I was a little bit older got hold of um a copy of that and that that lived in my mind for a long time um Tarantino Evil Dead um, and then other other films like um, the Marx Brothers. I was really into the Marx Brothers. Um, 
my left foot. I mean, it was a real mix of stuff on that shelf, a real eclectic mix. It's amazing, really, because when I think back to my days, I live in Shropshire, so I didn't have the greatest, you know, it's a Welsh border, so we didn't have, like, the cinemas around now, so I'd rely on my parents, but they might take me to, like, Blockbuster Video at the time, but I never had those sort of films. I was never allowed those. It was always, like, Back to the Future. But growing up in the 80s, I was lucky enough to see sort of, like, John Carpenter's The Thing quite early on. Yeah. And I remember that stuck with me. But the ones you've mentioned there, like, some of the David Lynch stuff, I mean, that just showed you, didn't it, that film didn't have any boundaries you could kind of do what you wanted and I think I love the fact that David Lynch still does that to today yeah absolutely and mentioning Carpenter Dark Star was amazing on that shelf and I honestly think that that film kind of helped me form my my sense of humor weirdly (laughs) like I just found that film at once really unsettling and really funny and really, really strange. There's something so absurd about it. And that beach ball was an alien. Um, <laughs> so good. I want to watch it now we're talking about it. I haven't seen it for so, years. It is incredible. And to think that that was his first film as well. Mind blowing. Yeah. That yeah. So that was a big one for me as well. I, I adored that film. But yeah, I was really I'm really lucky that my parents had such good taste. I wish you had a um like a photo of it now, like this classic whole bookshelf of films, because some of the stuff you mentioned there, my parents weren't even heard of. You know what I mean? You've got some yeah. incredible foundations to build upon there. Yeah, yeah, totally. I've got a, a visual snapshot of it <laughs> in my mind. It was all everything was recorded off the telly as well. A lot of you know yeah. all, all stuff we'd recorded off the telly mainly. Um, so I was massively into Red Dwarf as a kid as well. And uh, I used to record every single episode off the TV on, you know, Red Dwarf 1, 2. Amazing. Series, and I'd set the video timer to record because uh, we couldn't, yeah, I mean, I didn't have loads of money to buy brand new videos and stuff like that. So I was the same. I remember, like, I think it was like Thursday night at like nine o'clock on BBC Two, and there'd be that, and then there'd be bottom afterwards, and I'd be like <laughs> getting in absolute. My parents were getting meant at me because I've like videoed over like my mum's episodes of Brookside or something. But I was like <laughs> using that little bit of sellotape over the line. You weren't meant to go over just so I could record yeah. them on and then watch them. But those were the great days, VHS, weren't they? Yeah. And it's funny as well, that association you have with, you know, watching something and knowing that bottom came after it. And that kind of, you know, the routine of certain shows and and things like that it is. Yeah, we're in a different world now. It's quite funny to think yeah, how much things have changed and I mean you were you know in quite a remote area like you said if you wanted to go to the cinema it'd be a trip once a week so that commitment would be too much so when you kind of got that idea of how films are made because when you watch them as a kid you just love them don't you because they're visual there's sound there's all these colors and everything you just enjoy the performances but you're not actually realizing at a young age that you know there's a production in this there's a whole team of people there's a director at what age was it you were starting to click and think, actually, how are these films composed? How are these made? I think I was quite young. I mean, I remember before I went to college, so it would have been when I was still at school in my GCSE years, I was reading books about filmmakers that I loved. You know, I was reading David Lynch, uh, you know, books and and Tarantino. I was really into Harmony Korine as well. Um And then I thought I wanted to act. I knew I was interested in, you know, filmmaking in general. And I also painted a lot. I used to do a lot of drawing. So I I was very much into kind of the visual aspect, 
but my mum was an actress, you know, in the 60s and 70s and had gone to RADA and I grew up kind of, we'd be watching the TV and she'd say, oh, I went to RADA with her or I went to RADA with him. And so I had this sort of understanding of, of, of the kind of people that would come together to yeah. to make this this sort of thing and and want thought maybe I wanted to act so I ended up going to college and doing a BTEC in performing arts and while I was on that BTEC I had my first opportunity to direct something and it was I got to choose a play I chose uh, The Chairs by Ionesco which is like an absurdist um, play and while I was directing that I realized that directing brought all the things I loved together it brought together performance it brought together visual storytelling and if I transferred that out of the off the stage you know out of the theater and into film then it it also included film and I I was so excited by this idea of constructing a story and having control over the sound you know on a detailed level having control over the image and creating meaning with those things and so for me from that point onwards I knew I wanted to make films and I'd also worked out from watching myself perform that I wasn't a particularly good actor <laughs> um, so I think my kind of I knew I could perform, but I wasn't transforming into this other character. So I think while my passion for being behind the camera or being the kind of driver of the story as a director, um, while that was growing, my um, enjoyment of, of performing was probably shifting. My idea of, of how good I was was shifting. So I take it your family were on board straight away when you started saying at college, you know, doing your BTEC and everything that the film industry was something you wanted to get into. As hard as it is to make a name for yourself in that industry, sometimes families and parents are very big on, you know, it's it might not work out. You might need to get a proper job. Uh, weirdly, I did BTEC performing arts as well. Um, I didn't All think right. there was anyone else in the world that did it. I just did it because I wanted to play guitar and make <laughs> films as a living and it never worked out. But um were your parents fully supportive i mean were they like you can do this we can support you we know that you know you can make a career out of this if you put your mind to it yeah i mean my parents were the black sheep of their families in a yeah. way because they were both people you know we're talking about a different generation as well in terms of their parents they were both people that had decided to become my mum an actress my dad was a an artist um and photographer so they'd already followed their creative passions we didn't have any money, like we were poor. Um, but I suppose in a way, my mindset was always growing up that you do what you love. And um, so there was never a question, to be honest, in my head that, or in my parents' minds or any anyone around me, you know, it, it never seemed like it was a weird thing to go and want to do this. So I always had, yeah, support, which is great and really important. And then obviously after you've completed your education and you're getting involved in doing some work experience, doing all these various different roles, when was it it came about that you started to put pen to paper and write censor? Wow, so I mean, I made, you know, I went and studied at university and, and came out and I worked in different jobs uh, in the industry and was making short films and made music videos. And then I think I had the idea for Censor in 2012, but 
I didn't actually, we didn't start writing the script until 2016. Right. Um, it wasn't that we weren't working on it. We were batting treatments. I say we, me and my co-writer, Anthony Fletcher, we were batting a treatment, you know, an outline for the film around, but I got distracted, I suppose, by wanting to make a short film that would connect slightly to the feature or would allow me to explore themes and ideas. Um, and that was my short film, Nasty. So I was yeah. making that and it kind of postponed getting on to the script side of Censor. So yeah, we started properly writing the script for Censor in 2016, but I'd been making shorts and music videos. I mean, I started, I made my first short, um, you know, when I was on that performing arts course, yeah. I, you know, just me and my friends and me with a DV camera and getting my mum to use her car headlights to light the scene. That's incredible. <laughs> So, so while so, you're you making know. these um, short videos and music videos and short films and stuff, what was the point? I know we talked about a four-year gap between obviously making Nasty and then putting pen to paper for the script. At what point was it that you felt confident enough to be, become your first full feature? I mean, you must have learned a lot from doing Nasty to then take on to censor. Yeah, I mean, you learn. I, I made probably about, you know, five or six short films and a bunch of music videos. And then I was also always doing little other side bits of you know filmmaking in one form or another in my work so through all of that you're you're really developing your skills um and i think over the course of those shorts you just you 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 gain i guess yeah the the experience you need in order to get on set and know what you're doing i mean the first feature feels like a hurdle because you haven't done a feature before you haven't yeah. told a story this long before you haven't been on a shoot this long before and you're managing things on a slightly bigger scale but essentially you are doing the same thing that you're doing on a short when it comes down to it the nuts and bolts of directing on set within a scene directing the actors kind of figuring out creatively how you want to tell the story you're you're pretty much doing the same thing you're just doing it over a much longer form um and so that's all really great preparation yeah i i think you probably always don't feel quite ready and then you're doing it and then you're like well i'm doing it so so, so when it came to that and you're on set and it's all been greenlit and the funding's there and you're like this dream that you've had for a few years of writing and everything comes together was there a moment when you were like holy fuck like this is actually happening i'm on set i know it sounds crazy but was there a moment where you were like oh my god it's actually reality here i am and it's all happening around me because i can't even imagine myself getting in the headspace to be ready for that and the scale you were working at and the cast you had and the production team and everything was unbelievable yeah i think there are little flickers of that for sure but to be honest when when you're in the thick of of shooting you're you're so busy there's not that much space you know to step back and and look because you're just dealing with the next you know issue that's come up you're dealing with the next uh question you have to answer the next decision you have to make and so it's really constant um and then you're in the edit and it's very you know it's quite an intense experience the whole thing it felt more like to be honest as i've moved away from um, having made the film, having released the film, 
it's moments like framing a poster of your film <laughs> in your house yeah. and, and putting that on your wall or receiving a, you know a copy of of the of the blu-ray release and having that thing to me is i don't know there's something that really lands like wow it's been years of work and now it's a real thing i think maybe it's because those things are more recent and they're so, sort of stronger in my mind that those are the things that where it's really landed because there's so much you know there's so much insecurity in in some ways along every step of the way when you're making a film like you say will you get the money to to make it you know will you complete this scene on set will you complete your day are you going to get everything you need by the end you know will the edit come together will you know will all the sound and music work then once it's finished will you get into the film festival will people like it will you get good review you know it's kind of this constant um cycle of hoops that you're jumping through and hoping that you're gonna come out the other side positively and so it's really amazing to kind of have completed it and to 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 yeah it's it's there and you can hold it and you can look at it it, it must be really hard to kind of sum up but 2021 for you must have been absolutely insane because you could never anticipate this film to blow up like it did it won so many awards i remember seeing pictures on the red carpet of mark commode and one of the girls on tops tees the fact that girls on tops produced the tea with your name on second sight then announced they're bringing it out and it made all the top 10 lists of the year it's now already got like a cult status even though it's so new i don't know how you can even get your head around just how much of a debut this has had and the response was just unbelievable yeah it's it was amazing um it's kind of everything you've dreamed of and also at the same time it's quite hard to uh, get your head around yeah and, you know there's moments it's similar to to what we were saying about the shoot and things there's moments where it really lands and I think there was one moment for me where the sight and sound cover that was all video nasties um, that had been released and I'd seen it I saw it before it was released I had a copy and it wasn't until I was like moving around my house hoovering and saw a copy of Sight and Sound on the floor that it kind of clicked like, wow, we're on the front cover of Sight and Sound. It's almost like the thing doesn't land in your mind in that moment. No. It, it kind of comes a bit later when you're least expecting it. I find that really interesting, but it's it's really incredible. And every, you know, every message I get that of people saying lovely things about the film and all the you know all the comments and and things have just been really lovely and it's it's so nice to think that um we created something that people can enjoy this much and as a filmmaker uh, i'm not obviously one but what my dream would be i mean if it was an artist in, a, in the music industry i'd want a number one album as a filmmaker i'd always want my work to be a couple of years ago probably like as an arrow release an arrow video release but second sight have come along and they way that they treat these films stuff like um lake mungo and all these classic horrors that people need to know about the fact that you can now go to your shelf i suppose like your parents shelf and have your version of your film in the most beautiful packaging the artwork the extras they put all the time in that i think unfortunately 
distribution companies aren't doing as much now. You just buy a Blu-ray and it's got the film in the trailer. But these guys go to town and give you commentary, which I absolutely adore. Behind the scenes, all the outtakes, everything. Mm. And now you're part of that collection next to Dawn of the Dead, next to all these incredible films like The Guest. And it must feel unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what I mean. It, it I, Somebody posted um, a photo on, on social media and it was of all their second sight releases in a row. And it was sort of, you know, censor next to Raw. (laughs) So all these amazing films. And I I thought, I I screenshotted it. I was like, that's that's absolutely lovely. It's a a dream come true. And and Second Sight have been so collaborative as well in terms of the artwork and, you know, all of us having a kind of vision for what this Blu-ray could be. And I... I love the artwork, the cover artwork. It's incredible. I've actually, I framed my little card <laughs> that I got with it of the artwork. Actually, I know it's uh, it's too dark, and this is Raid Dead podcast. So, um, but yeah, I framed it, and I just yeah, it's gorgeous and and so in depth and really, really stunning, really beautiful. I mean, where do you go from this? You know, the the debut release is always the one that, you know, leaves your legacy, sets the bar high. You couldn't set it much higher for yourself to try and achieve. So where do you kind of go next? Did you want a bit of a breather and just to kind of digest and take everything that's happened? Or are you already sitting there ready to kind of go for this year and do something else? Well, last year was very much very, like, sensor-centric. Yeah. Um, and it was, it, even though I was starting to work on other projects, it was hard to find this headspace really to actually write anything else. So um, this year I've got a bunch of projects that I'm writing. So I'm deep in the first draft of another script already. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to be writing new material. Obviously, you know, there's also the wanting to make sure it's as good as the last thing. <laughs> but I think that's, that's every creator's dream and nightmare at the same time, isn't it? Um, but it, yeah, it's exciting to move on to other things and 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 dream about what the next project could be. Was there, because obviously you wrote this and then directed it and it's your material, do you entertain the idea already this soon into your career of working on someone else's script and someone else's story or are you more invested in the fact of producing everything yourself at this point and being in control? Well, what I'm working on at the moment, I'm co-writing with my co-writer from Censor. Yeah. Um, that's actually an adaptation <laughs> of a short story. So that's already moving into a territory that's not entirely coming from an original idea. However, all the other projects I have currently lined up are original ideas. Um, I am reading scripts and I am open to working on scripts that are already written. I mean, it would be lovely and amazing to find a script that already existed that I didn't have to spend months or years like agonizing over um, at my desk. But I guess it's all about what you wanna say and the way you wanna say it and finding that material that really makes you you know driven like that kind of gives you a heart attack and makes you go like I want to make this and it's hard to find that sometimes in in existing scripts yeah um 
I think I'm slightly more inspired by literature. Um, so adaptations are exciting. But yeah, I, I my thing is never say never. So I am always like open, you know, at the moment I'm not reading that much in terms of other scripts because I need to concentrate on writing. But I do read scripts that are sent in to my agent um, trying to find something that might click. And a lot of my friends that are in the film industry that discuss making films and people that listen to the podcast that are filmmakers or, you know, studying at the moment at film school, they truly idolize you for the fact that you've made this film. Uh, I've had conversations with my other podcasts and they voted your film as film of the year and they literally adore you. And what advice do you give to people that, you know, already want to try and become like yourself and make a film and stand above everyone else and get this work seen? Because we are in an industry where everything's so disposable with music on Spotify and films on Netflix. The, The kind of... I don't know. I think the attention span of people is very like, oh, I'll watch it. And if I'm not fancy, I'll just delete it. You know, it's that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. What advice do you give to people that are trying to get out there and get their work seen when it is so difficult to kind of be seen at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I can relate to that because I, I felt for a long time trying to get, you know, my short films funded and made often felt like, um, the ideas I was putting forward weren't the ideas that anybody wanted to make and I'd go for funding and get rejected. And I think ultimately there was a a passion and a, you know, a a sort of fire in me about making those particular ideas that meant I just find a way to do it anyway, whether that means doing it on like 150 quid with your friends However you can make it, just go and make it, do it the way, you know, sometimes your limitations can actually um, make you make something in a really unique way. It means that you find ways around problems and you might find that it pushes you into more creative solutions. So I would say just try and find a way for you to tell your stories, even if it's on a tiny budget, you know, when I was like working like that, for example, I remember finding locations and and thinking, oh, I've got access to this location. I'll write something that fits that location because I'm not writing something set in a spaceship or a castle that then I'm trying to find the money to afford the location. It's like looking around at what have I got here, you know, within my means and trying to create with that. And it doesn't mean you have to do stuff that's mundane and every day because the things I was creating, you know, were quite larger than life and 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 stylized. Um, it's just about being really clever with how you find your resources and also finding good people to work with. So finding collaborators who are driven and want to do either, you know, your mate who wants to make costume, your mate who wants to be a cinematographer, if you're growing together, you know, you're all passionate, you're all going to put that time in because it's serving all of you. So I guess that was how I did it. And it is hard because there is a lot of rejection along the way. But that is also true to many people, including me. So it doesn't mean that your ideas aren't good. It just might mean that that person can't see how great your idea is. So you have to go and show them. 
I've asked that question to over 180 people and I think that's my favourite answer and now it inspires me to like quit my job and go and do what I want with passion and hope it's enough. <laughs> Maybe don't quit your job. Just Yet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my girlfriend gets home tonight and she's like, we can't afford yeah. the mortgage, but yeah, hey. Exactly. <laughs> and my final question I ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast and it is putting you on the spot is... The outro to every single episode of the podcast uh, features some music. Now, the music itself can be chosen by the guest who's on the podcast. So for everyone that's been on, if it's Mads Mickelson, Kevin Smith, Sherilyn Fenn, whoever's been on the podcast, they all get to choose the outro piece of music. But I don't give you long to think about it. I don't let you come back and email me. It's today. So what song would you like that means a lot to you it can be any song by any band in the whole world it could be a piece of music from a film score i find directors find this difficult because there's so much to choose from <laughs> but is there something that when i ask you today after all the interviews polished it's all edited and it goes out on spotify and itunes and everything what would you like that to be for you today just for fun um, and to go back to my teenage drum and bass roots. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to choose Super Sharp Shooter. <laughs> I have not heard that for so long. <laughs> I, yeah, I haven't either. It was just like that was the thing that came to my mind. It was weirdly, it's between that and a Donovan song. Wow. <laughs> Which is like two extremes. But I think Super Sharp Shooter has a little bit more fun and energy to it. So let's all just have a dance. The thing is, that everyone now won't be expecting that, and then this will come on, and then I'll suddenly see loads of people tweeting the album cover and say, I'm listening to that again. I can't believe it. It's been 25 years or what? It'll be probably yeah. more now, which will terrify me. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, I'm a massive fan of your work. I can't wait to see where you go next. I'm, I'm kind of excited but teased by today because I know that you're penning a few ideas and there's all this and you're writing with the same person again. So it's like, oh, you've juiced me up and left me kind of dangling. <laughs> but I'm really excited and um, I'm, I'm happy to own the Second Sight set. I can't wait to see the response online. And just I'm so excited to see where this career goes for you because the mark you've already left in the horror community and the world of film already has been unbelievable. So thank you for joining me today. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you for having me. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the incredible Prano Bailey Bond. What an amazing person and such a thrill for me to speak to. I am so honoured that she came on the Mark and Me podcast and I felt that we could talk for hours. So I'm really hoping we can get her back on in the very near future. She teased us throughout. We found out about writing new films, working on scripts, and I can't wait to see the announcement when we find out what the follow-up will be after the amazing debut of Sensor. If by the time you've listened to this interview, you still haven't stopped or paused this and gone and got yourself Sensor, do it right now. Second Sight, who put all the love and effort into every single release, have just brought out Sensor. It's an amazing package, the artwork is incredible alone, the extras are all amazing, and I'm not paid to say this, it's one of my releases of the year, and yes, we're only in February, but Second Sight really know how to look after the fans, and it really is worth every single penny. I want to say a massive thank you again for Prano for coming on the show, and you're welcome whenever you want to come back on. Hint, hint, let's do it real soon. Also, if you've enjoyed today's episode, jump on markandme.com because on there there's links to Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I say this every time because it's crucial to the podcast. Please share this episode. It costs nothing to do. It's a click of one button to retweet or share it on Facebook or Instagram stories. And it might just get seen by a whole new listener that then jumps on board 
and falls in love with the podcast. It's the best way to market the podcast and it's simply the press of one button and costs you absolutely nothing. So please, if you've enjoyed today, get that episode shared. If you really want to support the podcast, I do have a Patreon page. Every single month, thanks to the sponsors of the podcast, Last Exit to Nowhere t-shirts, Richer Sounds who sell incredible TVs and hi-fi, and the amazing Vice Press who, in my opinion, are the best company out there right now for all your movie posters, all come along and give me some exclusive prizes to say thank you for supporting me on Patreon. The link is on markandme.com, but basically, if you're new to Patreon, all it means is each and every month you can throw £1 this way. That's the minimum donation, but that goes right back into the production of the podcast. allows me to host it on all these different directories, travel the UK to do more and more interviews, and keep the podcast going. Remember, I'm a one-man team. I'm the editor, the producer. I do the interviews. I find the interviews. I don't have any management or support, so it really does help. And thanks to those guys that I just mentioned, there'll be some exclusive prizes available just for you guys for supporting me. So please, if you've enjoyed today, it is not very much money at all, but it goes a massive way. I'll be back in only a few days' time with a brand new episode. So until then, go and watch Sensor, share this episode, look after yourself, and I'll speak to you all very soon. Thank you.
Shooting shots. 